Igor, it is a pleasure to have you here. And for everyone that does not know Igor, he's a data engineer at Agen. Correct me if I'm not pronouncing that. Uh, no one knows how to pronounce correctly, especially from expats. So, uh, because I've heard a lot of versions from Odian to Adian to like some sort of this, but let's stick to Adian. Adian, there we go. And what happened is that I somehow came across something that you were doing. And if anyone wants to go to Igor's profile on LinkedIn, I'll throw it in the chat right now. He, you just radiate ML ops from your profile. <laughs> I don't know how you do it, but instantly when I saw your profile on LinkedIn, I was like, dang, this guy seems like he's got some knowledge. We should probably get him on a meetup. And oh. I think I reached out and shortly thereafter, you were like, sure, give me a little bit of time, but I'll do something. Yeah, I've tried my best, man, because uh, I mean, not every day uh, person who, whom I wanted to reach out, like comes to me by himself, like because I wanted to reach out to you, like, hey, Demetrius, maybe we can speak about something. Like, I'm like, wow, I was thinking about this, and here's here's here. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty incredible what you're doing. I think we should probably get a bit of background info before we even start on the topic of today, which is a philosophical topic of how to avoid suffering when it comes to ML ops and data ops and data engineering yeah. and machine learning engineering. That's the long title. The short title is just how to avoid suffering. And <laughs> I, I would love to know how exactly you got into tech and what was your journey like to becoming a data engineer? Mm, uh, it's a very complicated journey and complicated story because uh, first time when I got in, into tech, it was mid nineties, I guess. Uh, the, I was a small kid and I was playing on my mother, mother's PC at her like uh, institute on, on, in, in game like Prince Persia. I still remember that game, it's awesome. And basically uh, all my childhood, it was with the old books like basic for children, something like this, you know, like Turbo Pascal, etc. But uh, to be serious, uh, I've started the programming uh, when I was learning bioinformatics because uh, my background is not computer science. Uh, I was doing uh, like for very long time, like my masters and some something on my bachelor studies. I was doing bioinformatics, like genome assemblies, genome annotations, etc. And there, I needed to learn something. I mean, because by hand, like you cannot do, like you cannot predict, and um, you cannot model anything. Like just like with your, I don't know, like with your imagination, you can, but mm -hmm. you need to provide some results. And there, I've started to work with the such ecosystem, like statistical ecosystem, like R. I mean, that's awesome tool, man. Like for statistical uh, programming, for visualizations, etc. And uh, I mean, this very awesome package like Bioconductor. Uh, but mm, but afterwards, like afterwards, I felt that uh, are like it's awesome, but it's super black box. Mm -hmm. So it, it is black box. It has some methods implemented, and uh, yeah, you can use them. You can to some extent even extend them, but it's not super flexible. So uh, already my 
PhD thesis I was trying to do with Python. There, like it was, I guess, 2010 or 2000, uh, somewhere there, uh, like 2010. I mean, but PhD thesis I didn't finish, so and uh, happy, happy me, I didn't finish it. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I've realized too too soon that uh, for that for doing PhD you need to be super romantic person. Mm. Because I, I mean, because it does not give you super big values of, except like some romantic, and like thinking about that you're contributing a lot of into science, especially in that like experimentation, biology, science, etc., a very conservative one. Yeah. And I guess yeah, at 2000 uh, after after I've dropped my PhD studies, I've I've started doing, uh, I mean, I've started programming basically. Oh, nice. and, uh, I don't know how it happened. Uh, but at that time, I, I mean, I, I, I always I had title like backend engineer, like, and this is all. But almost all the my career, I was doing just, uh, I was working just with data. So even on my first project, we were writing like web analytic tool, like from uh, for making anal an analysis of web logs, etc. And even there, we did implement our own small. NoSQL database. I mean, like it's super. Like I, I know that it's. it's uh, I would say uh, it would be super. I don't know, allowed to say that it was NoSQL database, but yeah, it was persisting data uh, in the, with the way which we wanted. So basically, and we've written it. It's blasphemy uh, on NoSQL databases. Ah uh, man, at that time I didn't know. Uh, almost anything. When I started writing it, I didn't know anything about how it should be working, etc. Because my background wasn't computer science, mm -hmm. and like, wow, I need to write this. And like, okay, I need to read how it should be working, etc. What is while like write a headlock, etc. Uh, why does it need, you know, do it, does it need acid or does it not need acid, etc. Um, about this uh, sharding, like all that stuff, I needed to learn at one at one time, basically, without having all the background in like in computer science. Mm -hmm. I would say it it was super challenging and it was super hard. Yeah, uh, I believe you. And after yeah, after that after that, I just go on like with another projects. Uh, I did a lot of them in consultancies, but. Recently, last last couple of years, before IDN and the, with before IDN inside IDN, I'm working mostly like data engineer slash ML ops. So I'm helping companies to uh, tune their pipelines with machine learning models and with data. Hmm. Well, I know that you all at Agent have a dedicated like ML ops team, and I want to get into that in a little bit, but. You said something in this intro that I find fascinating, which is you had to learn a million things at once and figure out the best practices, right? Yes. Do you have any recommendations on how to best do that? Because it feels like we're very much in a state right now where a lot of people are coming into MLOps from different areas and they need to learn a million things because the ecosystem is so large and try to pick up some best practices along the way. So are there any tips that you learned in that section of your life that you could pass on? Oh, a lot of tips. Uh, I mean, I also, also I was uh, teaching Python programming after, I mean, after like this, like uh, after learning 
everything by myself. I decided, mm -hmm. okay, maybe I need to transfer my knowledge or all my tips to like friends of mine and mm -hmm. to everyone who needs it. So, and I also was a, uh, teaching programming, like Python programming, like for two years in a row, uh, like locally in Ukraine. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so tips. I mean, from that time, I I have just wanted. If you need to build something, don't use huge frameworks when you don't understand how they how they do work. Try to understand everything from smaller pieces. And like like for example, you have like in web development, you have um, industrial like ready frameworks. Like for example, in Python Django, where everything comes with it, with it, and you have small web frameworks. So. From, uh, from my in, in my opinion, it's better to use small frameworks and to build everything by pieces, like with everything, like uh, with routing, with authentication, etc., 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 and you will understand how does it work. Uh, like after that, when you become old, lazy, or just lazy <laughs> person, like you, uh, like uh, sure you can use everything what you want, but when you are learning, uh, don't hesitate and to use small pieces and to, don't hesitate like to look inside how does it works like uh because uh but even when i was interviewing so i wasn't i wasn't looking at um, like tools uh, with which person had experience i was asking about uh inside like uh, about inside functionality of tools how they are working how person does understands uh, does, does understand like Python language, or uh, how person understand how um, data flow should, uh, should should look like, like inside. So um, that's that's my recommendation. Like to uh, work with small pieces uh, and to look inside of them. Like try try to turn on your curiosity, basically, because you need to push yourself to dig in in inside of tools to understand how they do work. Uh, why they work like this, etc. So. so if I, I can disseminate that for a moment, it seems like there's on one hand, you took your knowledge and you tried to, I like how you said that, you tried to transfer it to others. And that I've heard is a great way of also solidifying what you know, because yeah. you'll see where the holes are. And then on top of that, you were digging into these pieces that, I really like how you say that. Don't start with the gigantic framework that does everything, especially when you don't know how it works. Later, when you are an old hat, then you can get into it more and you can say, well, this is going to make my life significantly easier, so I'll do it then. But now, let me just figure out how these tools actually work and how they play together and what is underneath the abstraction layer so that I can become a better programmer, I can have a deeper understanding in case something does go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yes. That's totally like 100% to it. As, and especially with teaching others. Uh, I mean, first time, like first year when I was preparing lectures, I mean, like it's, it, it was a topic uh, like which I knew by my heart. I mean, I was using it every day, etc. But every time when I was preparing lectures, I was thinking about uh, how to explain uh, this like use case, how to explain how does it work. And I was preparing, like I was spending one full day for one hour lecture. 
And every lecture I was getting, uh, like, I wouldn't say stupid, but a uh, question, but a uh, very simple question to which I didn't have correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> at one time, it was embarrassing. Uh, and the, uh, after that, I, I'm, at one time, it was embarrassing, but I learned, like, very fast that if I don't know something, it's better for me to say, I don't know, and to look. Uh, to try to find how to explain it like next time or in our Slack, etc. So a little bit off topic here, but nobody's yeah, sorry, nobody's given a, a shout out to your background, and I want to just mention that your background is classic, especially because I think a few weeks ago I put on uh, LinkedIn or something. It was like explain the MLOps ecosystem in a GIF, and somebody put that GIF of the house on fire and it was like or it was like a meme and it was like everything's fine here we're all good and so that's the kind of confidence we all have in the MLOps ecosystem at the moment let's shift gears into what you're doing now with MLOps and I I think it will be useful for us to get a bit of background on how your team is structured what you all are doing because I know you have a dedicated platform or a dedicated MLOps team, I think is what you call it. Can you dive into that a little bit more? Uh, yeah, but uh, maybe uh, I will give you a bit more history here. So yeah. because at Adin, we just started to have dedicated MLOps team just recently, like uh, last couple months, I would say, like it, it was officially shaped, officially, because mm -hmm. before we uh, had initiative, like with people who, like, who were doing it. Uh, but we have this team inside of uh, another big initiative, like which we call uh, Center of Data um, Infrastructure, etc. So, uh, because um, uh, because we need to keep this team very close to uh, infrastructure itself. So, why it is? So maybe it's a bit a bit of topic, but I mean I want to explain. Uh, how to avoid all this fire be behind behind me, <laughs> or how to how uh, how after a couple of months say okay this is fine this is just small fire <laughs> so uh, there is very nice talk uh, from former head of data engineering at Slack I don't I don't remember his name right now but uh, it was about rise of data engineering and he had this infinite loop of sadness when in four corners he has like business data science data engineering, and we can uh, place here also MLOps, and infrastructure. And everyone's them disconnected, especially when you have them uh, like in their own domain silos, et cetera. And one of them, every one of them disconnected, like in communications, and you have mass, you have fire. You don't have this fire, you have huge fire, like dumpster fire. I really like his, uh, his example with dumpster fire. So this is why when we were starting this initiative, like with data engineering and with ML ops, we like we were pushing to be close to infrastructure, and we were designing it with thinking of how to uh, connect us with data scientists. Because in data engineering and with uh, ML ops, you have a couple of stake stakeholders, and unfortunately. In very rare, rare cases, you have stakeholder like a business, but in most cases, you have stakeholders that's your data scientists, that's your clients, internal clients, and you need to have 
very close communication with them. Like, uh, I don't know, like about every day, but every week you need to uh, like catch up with them, like to share your experience. They need to share with you your their pain, pain because mm -hmm. you need to solve the pain. So, and basically, uh, we we have not 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 big team. I would say uh, we have team of five, and we com compose a team of uh, of that big bigger group of data infrastructure like engineers. Uh, not like infrastructure engineers, but uh, in engineers who know, who knew how our data infrastructure works, and also uh, of data scientists, like technical one. So take us through this evolution of what you've been working with in the past. And I know that you mentioned to me before, it, you had, you rolled your own, right? And then eventually you got to a point like where you said, we need to transfer over to open source because um, the it's mature enough. Or what does that look like? Can you give me a yeah, bit so of you, background? Yeah. So uh, there is very nice blog post uh, at Ident Tech uh, about um, about our infrastructure which we had. So you can Google it. So uh, it was about our internal. Um, scheduling system. So, so I, I, I will try to find it and I will post in, in the chat. So it uh, it was describing that basically uh, due to some constraints which which we had previously, like uh, three years ago, it was built uh, in house scheduling system. Like with some look at airflow and how it was working, but it was built homegrown, like with our own. I don't know. With, with our own bugs, etc., and it was supported just by one person. I mean, but it was doing uh, uh, its works. It, it, it worked, and that's why it was adopted. Uh, why it happened? It happened because at some point, uh, all the data initiative were, uh, I don't know, were, were thought that it was just POC, like proof of concept. And it was huge mistake uh, for the people who were working with it. Why? Because when you're trying to build a system which interconnected with different parts, let's say um, we have mm, data engineering or machine learning engineering. Okay, let's let's dive into machine learning. You have system which connected with different parts. That's infrastructure, that's CI/CD pipelines, that's some artifacts, etc. So that's training system for machine learning models. And uh, you cannot start thinking about like POC. You already need to have in your mind uh, thoughts about that, how it should be working uh, when it's production ready or how it should be working in a year. I mean, I'm not saying about different parts, but I'm saying about constraints or requirements. Like, does it need to have, have availability? Does it need to be full tolerant? Uh, redundancy, etc. So, what load it should maintain. So, uh, and also, like I'm here, and just describing uh, like technical parts. But huge problem also that when you start something and you roll out uh, like some POC product to uh, people who is hungry for doing analytics. Yes. So you're like, okay, here are POC product, do analytics. Like you can do like, uh, like create features, create your models. They started working with it and, uh, and eventually you end up with something which 
widely adopted, where we, with which people uh, like already uh, they learned how to work with it and migration from that homegrown system or like POC like minded to something very super uh, production ready will be very painful because of mm. the adopted practices. They wrote some code for like like hacky code to cover some use cases uh, to cover some bugs etc so that's a huge that's... point right there if you don't plan for production from the beginning then it's going to be painful trying to go from poc to production is that what i'm understanding yeah correct yeah and especially in data and especially in data world you need to forget about poc period mm. Uh, you need to uh, to think about products, and uh, even when you're doing POC, it's need to cover all use cases which you need to have. And here I'm saying about technical use cases and also about mm -hmm. use cases for end users. I mean, uh, like I mean, that's my opinion, personal. Maybe someone will not agree with me, but when you're working in data world, like and in machine learning world. Forget about POC. POC can can work on your laptop to check, oh, is it good for this environment on my laptop? And that's all. Or you need you want to check uh, updates for new MLflow UI or whatever. But forget about that POC uh, like this abbreviator, like three letters POC in data and, and ML world. Yeah, oh, I love that idea. That's a great quote too. So. We've got some questions coming through the chat and I will just take a moment yeah. to mention to everyone, feel free to throw questions in. This is all of us uh, here. So I will get to them as they come. Ron is asking a question. Ron, I was trying to warm him up a little. I was gonna get here, but I like how you dive into it and get right to the point. Ron does not like to beat around the bush. He says, what tech stack does your team use now and how do you handle data lineage? Oh, data lineage. Um, unfortunately, with data lineage, I cannot say a lot here. Uh, why? Because so something is under NDA. So, but uh, about tech stack uh, for sure. So, uh, because I mean, long story short, Adyen is the on-prem company, and that's, that's why we uh, constrained with some choices. But uh, for uh, for our data world, we do use open source tools like HGP platform, like Horton Data World, Horton Data Platform, Spark, and the Jupyter Hub installation. So that's for like processing data for uh, like ad hoc queries, etc. Uh, for orchestration and for controlling like scheduling of machine learning models, like training of machine learning models, I guess, I guess we, uh, it's already industrial standard, but that's airflow. I mean, that's, that's not, not, not a secret. Uh, and for uh, machine learning, like metadata storage or for tracking, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very uh, hard topic with me because we've, uh, we, we've started to use MLflow a long time ago, when. It was uh, good. I mean, when it we just start, like was presented by Databricks. Uh, but with all our experience, which we have, that uh, I can say that Amazon maybe it's good uh, and super good on Databricks cloud, mm -hmm. maybe. But for use case on when you when you have 
on-prem installation when you need to support uh, different like ACLs, like access to release, like a different role-based access control. Like uh, when you you want to see um, visualization and metrics not based on run of like of every model, but on based of experiments, etc. I mean that's not that's not super nice. Too. You need to mm -hmm. you need you, you need to add uh, new functionality, but you like especially with UI, etc. I'm not complaining about API, but especially with UI, you, you were restricted because it's you already have ready compiled React future React application, and you're super restricted with it. Like uh, I mean, I'm like from my point of view, uh, it's it's not super nice for on-prem installations. That's something that I've heard from a few other providers, where it will get you eighty percent of the way there. And then if you want to add that extra 20, you're going to suffer. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Getting uh, back and, to the how to avoid suffering, that is probably one choose choose wisely. But it seems like you chose back in the day and now you're regretting it. Uh, I would say I'm regretting uh, about it because uh, um, just because personally me, uh, I wasn't not thinking about all the use cases. If I were thinking about all use cases, I maybe I would have I would have made different choice. But uh, at that point of time, first I didn't want to reinvent wheel, honestly. So, and even now, so uh, I will say that I'm going to, or we are going to ditch something. So, uh, I'm, it's better for me to work with officially supported or by supported by community mm -hmm. uh, open source tool and try to enrich it somehow like with our internal tools or with uh, homegrown tools, etc. So, uh, for example, MLflow has super nice and super rich API, which we still can use. And we still can use it in different uh, projects and different aspects, etc. But yeah, so I would say how to avoid suffering. Uh, don't start with reinventing wheels. Check experience, which, I mean, you're not the only one with this problem, especially in our world. We, we have a lot of uh, companies which try to solve the same problem. So try to reach to the community and try to use tool which solves 80% of, of your use cases. And maybe 20% uh, with 20% you will be suffering, but that will not be like 100% suffering. <laughs> I like that. And if anybody else has any any of those stories, let us know in the chat of using one tool and it gets you 80% of the way there. And then that last 20% was a bit of a headache. The next question we're getting from Karsten is, uh, is your work constrained because your stakeholders are data scientists? Do you have to make compromises because of that? We've mm. talked before about how it can be a pain to use notebooks. So would you force the data scientists to write Python scripts or are there any other friction points? Uh, like here's, I, here I have multiple answers. First, uh, I don't feel myself constrained with uh, having stakeholders as a data scientist so, because data scientists is that, I mean, okay, uh, I think that Data, scient uh, data scientist is my clients. Let's say, like, if uh, if I if I can have analogy like of consultancy, 
and the, like consultancy business here. Um, I'm, I'm, I would say that here I have my own startup in which I'm, I'm taking part in. So, and we have clients like the data scientists. So, and it's not constrained. So, I need just, um, I need just to understand their pain and how to help solve their pain. Um, and that's super nice because personally, me like ML ops engineer or data engineer, I don't know what to create. I mean, I can create platform, like, and I was, I, I was say it's state of the art platform, but if it doesn't solve the problem of data scientists who need to train model, to uh, work, like to uh, load model, to check metrics, to serve model or whatever, like it's, it will be a piece of shit, sorry, yes. <laughs> well, and so that begs the question, you must be working closely with the data scientists. How does that interaction happen? Mm, uh, yeah, uh, except, uh, except that we have um, like very, uh, I mean, except that we have channels like in MetaMods that's analog of Slack, et cetera, but we have ch channels where we, we're constantly flooding about everything, <laughs> especially release-related release re and code-related. But also we have different alignment sessions with different, uh, I, I would say, with different level of representativity. So uh, we have alignment sessions with data scientists. Also we like in short one and it's uh, just between team leads, etc. Also we have alignment sessions uh, for broader group where we share our progress. I mean, we, sh we uh, share our progress like data engineers, machine learning engineers, and they discuss their own topics. Uh, sometimes it's super boring for me. <laughs> sometimes uh, it's not, it, it is not, <laughs> but yeah. So, uh, and this loop needs to be, um, we need to, uh, we need to have this loop all, all the time, like open and we need to communicate. Also uh, when, I don't know how it happened, but it's super nice because uh, when something is not working, data scientists, re, uh, data scientists are reaching directly to some engineers who, uh, uh, like, who is responsible for that feature or with whom they were speaking about, like this feature, etc. And it's super nice because uh, just after, like, um, after release, something broken, and we were speaking on stand up, like, yeah, I mean, we noticed that it's broken, maybe we need to fix it. Mm. Like, and a colleague of mine says, ah, yeah, so I, yeah, I already had the talk with data scientists, like, yeah, I know, I, I, I'm going to fix it. So, I mean, that's super nice. Uh, I mean, just speaking, speaking, speaking. That's, that's uh, there is not, there is no another answer. Yeah, so it's, that's really the, close feedback loop or the the yeah. short feedback loop and then also i like what you said that there are oh, i can't remember the name now i had it in my mind yeah. but the the different uh sinks that you have on the different levels what did you call alignment. it yeah the alignment sessions yeah. that i think is huge too that's very interesting to think about so we've got another question coming through the chat uh from daniel shout out to daniel he's saying jack Hanlon, VP of data at Reddit, had a great quote the other day where he talked about how solution providers have pressure to grow their offerings horizontally and start spreading to new things. Yes, totally. One example of this might be weights and biases expanding from experiment tracking to hyperparameter sweeps. 
yes uh, again especially because they just got that round of funding just curious if you have any thoughts on how to think about this kind of thing in build versus buy decisions build versus buy decisions uh, I mean, what the, sorry, I mean, maybe so, I, yeah, I it, uh, mean. <laughs> basically like when you have a, a company and you buy them for one piece of the ah, puzzle, you buy the right? season, sorry. Yeah. and then they start to grow and they start to take up more of the space because they're getting pressure, probably outside pressure from investors, or they're just, they want to try and be like any company and make more money, make more sales, which yep. is completely respectable. How do you look at that when you're analyzing the build versus buy decision? I have a clear answer to this, honestly. So, because when you have, if I understand correctly, so when you, when you pushed to like to grow and you push to deliver uh, different different tools etc okay i mean i have i don't know why but i i have a company on my mind it's databricks it yeah. has very nice very nice product like spark i mean it and it's uh, provides very nice cloud based uh, i mean like solution with spark but also i don't know why but it, it is pushed to deliver different other by products and sometimes they are good, sometimes they are not good. So um, overall, I would say that overall, they, when company is pushed to deliver something, then I guess they have good reason for this. But I beg them, like, please check uh, offering, check quality, mm -hmm. etc. Uh, have closed loop, uh, communication loop with community, etc. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Now, one thing that I'd like to know is about this idea of when to build and when to grab an open source tool. And if I understand correctly, what you all were doing was using a lot of, or you were basically building a lot of your own. And then you started to say, hey, it seems like the ecosystem is mature enough now we can use some open source tools is that how it worked or did you go from open source from the beginning and just try and build uh, on top of that i was i will not say that we were we were waiting for open source to be mature enough uh i mean uh, because honestly when i joined when i joined Adam, we already had a very mature, um, very, very mature open source uh, ecosystem. So I, I mean, uh, I'm not fully aware about all the decisions which were made before, before me, etc. But uh, went to. I'm I'm a huge fan of open source. I would say uh, when you when you can, and when you don't have any legal regulatory compliance uh, restrictions and uh, go with open source. And if you can also return to open source because just in uh, that way, we can have good open source uh, products, good open source ecosystem. And I mean, yeah. So right. why is right. that? That's an interesting one. And I know there are an, a lot of people that are very deep in open source or very big advocates of it, but I'd love to hear your take on why you feel you would rather have open source than either building your own or buying something. 
Mm, yeah, I mean, we can even buy open source. I mean, there is a big, uh, there, there are big company which uh, grew on open source. Let's say Databricks, uh, uh, Connect, like Kafka, Confluent. Sorry, yeah, like, their product like Confluent, um, DataStacks, etc. Uh, I'm, I'm not uh, as there is not advertisement, but I'm saying that there is companies which uh, offer open source products like we support. Um, but I would say um, always, if you can, if if you don't have restrictions, always try to go with open source. Just because uh, there is open source is supported by huge number of people. Like I, I mean, and this number can be like ten times, hundred times more than your team or your company. And they sh- they share just knowledge and experience in that product so, and you cannot be smarter than them or you can make very stupid mistake which uh, will be spotted by some other person like in the open source community yeah do you feel like you need to have a certain maturity or a certain number of engineers to be able to do something like that though mm. About maturity, no, I wouldn't say that you need to be, you need to wait 10 years uh, after that's trying to uh, commit to open source to, or to uh, like to resolve some open, like bugs in your favorite open source tools. You don't need to wait because some open source tools are striving. I mean, they need to help, like inex- even inexperienced help, like for fixing bugs in documentation or somewhere else, like. Uh, uh, and the second part of question, I um, I might be I might forget, but you were asking if we need to give why we need to give back. Yes. Well, or? no, I I was thinking more along the lines of a company that might not have the engineering resources, and so is it wise for a small startup that's trying to move fast to go with open source still, in your opinion, or should yeah. they? Yeah, I mean, just um, buy something. Uh, I mean, that's pros and cons. Uh, but uh, if I would say to to go with open source, because you need to understand what you need to buy. So, uh, very very simple examples like with microservices or with the database. So, with microservices, you you don't need to start directly with microservices. You need to start with your monolith and to grow grow and to see what parts needs to be separated the same with database you don't need to start directly with the NoSQL or with a hadoop cluster i mean start with small relational database check patterns check what tables are growing etc mm-hmm. outgrew your database and uh, etc so for for buying commercial supported products, you also need to have, uh, I mean, not use case, but you need to outgrew some small open source products or some widely adopted products. Uh, but I mean, but maybe maybe it can save a lot of money, uh, I, <laughs> I guess. Uh, I mean, it can save a lot of money if you're buying, for example, um, some database from Oracle or whatever, but- uh, <laughs> Everyone's honestly, favorite database provider. Uh, Everyone's favorite database provider, <laughs> Oracle. Like <Air> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but honestly, you need 
for paying for something, uh, you need to have use case for the tool, and basically you need to outgrow your own uh, resources. And here I'm, uh, I mean your own skills which you have in your company or in your team. Mm, that's a great point. So let's talk about this process of, of you translate transitioning and i know there there was something that you were you mentioned to me and it's like finding the correct process in the transition from and scaling up right and how to find that that process how to know when you're doing something right when you're you're transitioning from homegrown or you're building on top of open source and how can you tell what your true north is? Is it just by talking to the data scientists and making sure there's that feedback loop we talked about earlier? Or uh, yeah. are there other ways? Mm, no, there, there is no other way. So you, uh, but I mean, there is no other way. So you need to speak with data scientists. Why you need to speak? Because uh, I mean, there is, uh, there is migration strategy. Uh, it has uh, two names. I don't know why it's called green red or green black, green strategy, etc. Uh, I mean, the whole idea of it: you you have your old installation, uh, which does something, and meantime, when it does something and you maintain it and maybe adding new features, you are building new installation. Um, so this one all green and this one black or red i mean that doesn't matter so i mean uh, there is like the difference between black and red red so and why while you're building it i mean it's not it is not short project i mean it can last for a year or two years or mm -hmm. i don't know like um, it, for sure it will be la la lasting more than two weeks so and while you're building you need to communicate with your stakeholders data scientists like what features you need to migrate from old one to new one uh, and the what, and especially what does it mean for all your stakeholders and for you to have, uh, like to have feature parity between old installation and new installations, because maybe some features or some use cases or some functionality will be slightly different, but uh, it will be feature parity, something like this. Uh -huh. And just after getting feature parity between two installations. Uh, you can have some official uh, point in time when you switch off your old installation, etc. I mean, there there is uh, there are possible different ways how you switching uh, switching off old installation because you need to make sure that new is working correctly, that it's producing same results or same data, etc. Uh, you need to compare it. So, like all the ceremonies, but they just one thing which you need to. Uh, assure first that feature parity that uh, and that's you can achieve just by communication with data scientists or data analysts or whomever else like your team needs to have like closed loop like you've rolled out new feature uh, or some like technical or not technical or the test did test that on new installation on old installation check that yeah that's okay that's cool and afterwards, yeah, you can be sure that there's the case. That, I think, is a brilliant point that you made about the feature priorities and how you need to know what to take with you and what to leave behind. And when you take it with you, it shouldn't just be this lift and shift. It should be an upgrade, right? I've heard people talk about how they don't believe in just lifting and shifting 
they think that whenever you're going to actually migrate, you should migrate for the better. And uh, if, for sure, for sure. Even if uh, like facade or like API or UI remains the same, but honestly, you need to invest uh, a bit more resources into implementation just to be sure that the next guy who comes after you will say that it's special cheese. Mm-hmm. Just because of that. Yeah. Uh, we've got a question coming through. And then I want to ask you about, so I'll ask this question and then later I'll ask you about some war stories because I'm sure you have a lot of them and I'd love to hear what went wrong. <laughs> That's always fun to talk about. Yeah, about but let's, let's hit this one first. How do you know if one of your models being served in production is working well or needs to be retrained? I guess this was because the the monitoring piece what are you using for monitoring? This this is another huge part of the puzzle. So how are you keeping tabs on these models? Uh, basically, a lot of dashboards. And also, we piggybacking on the monitoring infrastructure, which was built by our brilliant infrastructure engineers. I mean, it's, it's super boring stuff, maybe for... For most of you guys, but uh, Prometheus, scrapping, uh, and we just visualizations as metrics on um, on dashboards. Yeah, and you find that to be good enough because this is one thing that I am fascinated about is if Prometheus and Grafana are good enough for the data space, mm. and because you see a million tooling companies coming out right now, well, not a million, but there's a lot that are popping yeah. up like mushrooms that are specifically monitoring for data? For, I mean, um, here we're speaking not monitoring data, but we are speaking about monitoring uh, our models on production, how they are served. Yeah, sorry, did I say, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, it's a bit different than monitoring data because uh, when you're monitoring models on production, basically you have a couple metrics to monitor. Okay, not a couple, but you have different, two different groups of monitoring. Uh, there's uh, monitoring like web service itself and all the hardware metrics of server, which which we have, etc. So I guess it's super boring stuff because uh, it's the result of blog posts, etc. But basically you're scrapping with Prometheus all the metrics, uh, how does it perform, etc. Health checks. Um, or even uh, if you if you use some service discovery, for example, console, you can use this brilliant tool. Uh, or I guess from Netflix, we have Eureka, like service discovery tool, which already know if service is health and if it's running, etc. Uh, and second stuff, which you need to monitor with your monitor of the model, that's uh, how does it performs, like uh, interference does it degradate or if it's not degrading and um till this moment uh grafana is still good for having i mean maybe it's lagging a bit but to compare that uh interference of new model uh it's better than old one etc uh, it's it still can represent so it becomes a bit messy when you have when you want to uh, when you want to describe or uh, when you want to see huge number of uh, services like mm-hmm. how does they 
performance HRI in different data centers, in different machines, like even the same model, but which was deployed into different data centers. Like you already can have uh, very uh, very clumsy like UI essentially. So yeah, but it still does its work, does its job. And do you have automatic retriggering, uh, uh, retraining of models set up? Uh, we're still working with it. So we just, uh, uh, I mean, I've, I've, mm, let let let's clarify because uh, different people people uh, or different teams or different companies understand uh, different stuff with automatic uh, retriggering. Mm -hmm. So uh, what can be an automatic retriggering? It can be just training the model. So uh, and that's all. Or it can be training the model and deploying it or to production. Mm -hmm. So, uh, training the model uh, to make it automatically, it's kind of easy to do with a state of state of the art or orchestration tool like Airflow, for example. Because when you have Doc which does this, uh, you need just to release your code or release your Doc, etc. So, and it's already will be scheduled and it will be automatically retriggered. Even even if you don't have. Uh, uh, when you don't have schedule scheduled time for training, you still can trigger with Airflow API or Airflow CI automatically. Uh, but if you're speaking about deploying it to the production, I mean our part of stuff still needs to be still needs to be done. We still yet to, to discover how it should be done. And it's uh, in our space, it's super interesting uh, and super hard, I would say, uh, challenge because uh, because financial institutions, they're super regulated. We need to have different compliance. For example, different people, the same person cannot own entire in, uh, deployment or entire infrastructure. So if I'm building something, I cannot own its deployment, etc. So, and uh, that's uh, that's which we need to obey. And there is numerous of different different uh, restrictions which we have. So we need, I guess, for us, it's still yet to be discovered and we need to understand how to do it correctly. And because everyone wants like to have just one button, click it, and model production and is getting live traffic, etc. <laughs> but unfortunately, no, there should be some, uh, like some friction added. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you say that too. There is a lot of talk about that. And it still is not clear if that's the best way of going about it. Right. Like it is nice, like you say, everyone wants that. But as you're mentioning, especially in the financial space, you have regulations and you can't just do that without keeping those regulations and these different uh yeah. these different laws in mind so that is a very important point to keep in mind now yeah. and financial financial uh, sphere is is not super regulated if we compare even with healthcare uh yesterday i was speaking with a friend of mine from from health healthcare and he has much worse situation because the uh, because of explainability I mean, just imagine if something goes wild with his model, which predicts uh, like someone health condition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's much worse problem. And uh, I'm, I mean, 
I will say that I'm super happy that I'm not in healthcare, but it's <laughs> it's super nice problem and super big problem to tackle also. Nice. So a quick question before you give us a war story from Jack. He's asking what kind of hardware you're using for the on-prem model training. Mm, um, uh, yeah, hardware. <laughs> Uh, for on-prem training, uh, we don't have any special hardware, so I guess that uh, usual machines machines with the uh, 32 cores or something like this. Uh, I don't remember how much RAM, but I guess around bigger than half there. I, I, don't, I don't remember. So I mean, that's usual machines. With the, with the serving machines, it's a bit it's a bit harder uh, because serving machines. You need to understand that uh, machine learning, machine learning model prediction that's CPU bound. So as uh, there, you need to have. Uh, I mean, and you cannot serve more models than, or I mean, you cannot. Yeah, you cannot serve more models uh, more uh, than your, you have cores on your machine itself. So because um, because everyone wants to have very fast interference, like request. Scoring response, request response. So basically, you have CPU bound, uh, CPU bound um, process. Uh, with RAM, also there is there is not so big. Uh, how to say? Yeah, there is no constraints with RAM. Like you need to have a lot of RAM, etc. Because or requirements. Sorry, there because you need just to have as much RAM as the, you have models. As, uh, I mean, as total size of the models to be serialized and to be placed in RAM. Uh, so, answering your question uh, also about serving, <laughs> you need to have a lot of cores, a lot of cores. Yeah. Now let's hear it, man. The moment everybody's been waiting for. Give us some of your war stories. What are or horror stories even? What are some things that you've learned along the way to finish out this meetup? Uh, horror stories. Um, I wouldn't. I mean, it's not super horror story, but it's share sharing of uh, experience. Uh, guys, don't do context switching <laughs> because with context switching, constant con constant context switching, you can do mistakes. For example, removing data from the HDFS skip trash and after checking what data you did remove. <laughs> So uh, uh, don't do this. So uh, because from that stuff comes all your um, uh, from context switching and without any, without focusing on some stuff which needs to be delivered, you can you are doing a lot of mistakes. Uh, also, <laughs> uh, it's it's our internal joke which I uh, w want to. Uh, want to fix some uh, somehow, but I'm not allowed because. Uh, I mean, because of uh, because of some uh, because of uh, some constraints, but uh, be wise with naming of your products, guys. <laughs> because we have router, which is not router but server, but it's called server, and we have gateway, which is not gateway, but it's uh, router. <laughs> so be wise with your namings. That sounds like a lot of fun, and so you have to automatically train your mind to think router is actually server and gateway or gateway <laughs> is server and router is not yeah 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 so we only trained our minds and <laughs> but 
it, it is fun. So uh, like per se, our failures, which we have, uh, I, I even cannot, I even cannot recall them. Why? Because uh, I wouldn't say that Alien is uh, that company which allows you to make a lot of mistakes, but uh, you can make mistakes. So, and uh, I mean, if you're making mistakes and you're not being punished for that, so you just, okay, okay, then I can improve myself. So, and this, this is why I'm, this is why for last three years, for sure, I did a lot of mistakes. Uh, especially with migration and especially with communication because I'm super optimistic person and they're like, oh, okay, now we can migrate and afterwards we're migrating after, I don't know, like a couple months, etc. But uh, that's part which I really like about audience that it's, I mean, you can make mistakes, it forgives. I mean, to, to some extent. <laughs> you so you're not everything. totally scarred by these different mistakes that you've made they've passed through your mind and you can't remember them now yeah yeah and that's also examples that i did all of them <laughs> well i really appreciate you taking the time to sit with us and talk and go through this process and really talk a bit about everything we bounced around a lot so thanks everybody for joining us and coming along for the ride but igor this is it man i really appreciate it and for all of those that are listening, I didn't even put a link to our Slack, but if you want to check out the Slack, just go to mlops.community, or if you're listening in the future, then you can check the links below. And that's it. I will see you later. Thanks again, Igor. Thank you, Madurus. Thank you guys for listening. It was a very nice experience. See y'all. See you.